This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. You're listening to a Joycast from GLB TIQ community radio station Joy 94.9. Across Australia, on the community radio network to over 70 community radio stations around the nation. This is Word for Word, coming to you from Australia's first gay and lesbian radio station, Melbourne's Joy Hello and welcome to Word for Word. I'm Dean Beck and it's great to be with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. The French historian and philosopher Voltaire once said, History consists of a series of accumulated imaginative inventions. But as an advocate of civil liberties and social reform, I think even he would be impressed by the work the Australian Gay and Lesbian Archives does to make sense of our rather underground queer past. A new book by the Archives, titled Secret Histories of Queer Melbourne, shines a light on our somewhat shady past. If nothing else, the book highlights the fact that lesbians and gays have been around in this city since pretty much day one. As Oscar Wilde said, any fool can make history, but it takes a genius to write about it. Please welcome the co-editor and one of the geniuses, genius, genius I, whatever that is, behind the secret histories of Queer Melbourne, Daniel Marshall. Thanks for joining us, word for word. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, the, the book is the product of many hands. Um, uh, there are about a dozen writers who, who wrote um, pieces for the book, and um, there were two other uh, editors for the book. And the book really came out of um, the history walks that the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives has been running since the 1980s. So and tell us about those. So... Um, like the way that the book is structured, the history walks really um, take people around uh, different locations in the city and um, over time they're focused on different parts of the city. So um, some points have been centred in the city. They've been um, There was one that I did with Graham Willett at, around Melbourne University and Parkville. They've been uh, The one that we did this year was um, in uh, uh, South Yarra and around that area. So they focus on particular parts of the city and they tell... Um, uh, historical stories at particular locations. Take us through one of those walks. Take us through the Parkville walk. Well, um, I guess if we look at the book as an example, um, the, the book uh, is structured around the, the map of the of, of the grid of the city, and it's designed so that um, readers can choose their own adventure, so to speak. So um, it's similar to books um, by Jeff and Jill Sparrow called Radical Melbourne. I'm not sure if you're familiar with those books, but they um, uh, they were similar in, uh, in the sense that they had place-based uh, anecdotes histor- historically. And so with the Secret Histories um, of Queer Melbourne book, 
people could um, go around from location to location. So, for example, you could go to the old site of the um, uh, Hotel Australia, which is now the Australia um, uh, on Collins. Ah, yes, and, yep. um, and that was where there was an infamous um, kiss-in uh, after uh, two gay men were... Um, uh, uh, charged um, for offensive behaviour by police, uh, and um, and so they can go to these places and they can you know um, uh, reimagine history and um, um, reenact it if they like, and sort of choo- choose history to become something that's um, exciting for them, you know, in the contemporary c- context. What is the oldest, uh, if you like, record of some sort of queer happening in in Victoria? Well, in Secret Histories of Queer Melbourne, some of the earliest uh, 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 chapters talk about um, the story of um, some um, female squatters who um, who were companions and they've left some uh, um, documentary evidence about their, their companionship and, um, and a mourning brooch, um, which is housed in the State Library. The first chapter, I believe, in the book um, talks about... Um, Bush rangers and some of the rumours that swirled around some of the bush rangers, but also some. It's a lonely of life out there in the bush. <laughs> it is. It is. That's right. And there were lots of men in um, in Australia proportionally at that historical period in Australia, um, but also some of the, uh, the 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 stories about the um, the affections of some of the police, and of course because the. Um, the, the, the his- affections of some of the police. Well, so in, in Graham's chapter, he talks about um, a, a, um, a police officer who um, was quite taken with some of his colleagues, apparently. Right. And, um, and of course, because the historical record um, uh, relies heavily on, on uh, legal accounts, um, court court uh, details, etc. Um, a lot of the earliest kind of recordings that we have are of um, a men who um, were getting in trouble for having sex, you know, um, um, in public places. Um, that uh, bit's not changed. Well, <laughs> I, I, um, I guess um, I guess it's a, it's a popular theme. <laughs> uh, well, let's explore some of those, uh, if you like, uh, rather interesting locales. Um, many of them have since been bulldozed, bricked up, um, absorbed, no longer exist. So to to discover them, one would have to go through quite a lot of paperwork, I would have thought, unless how does it come to your attention? Sure. So some of the places come to our attention through um, oral histories. The, the archives has an oral history project um, that's a very important part of um, uh, remapping the history once things are lost. So in, in the... Um, in the book, um, we talk about there's a, a chapter on a uh, history of beats, um, and uh, there's a discussion in that chapter about um, beats that uh, men uh, recall fondly, um, which um, have and the first reference to this was uh, in the 1800s. Well, there is a, cha- a chap. There's a, a in the book. There's a discussion of a letter from a Mr. Cleal, I think, in 1901, who wrote a letter to the police um, commissioner, I believe. Uh, raising his concerns about um, uh, activities, uh, unsavoury activity that he saw going on at public toilets and provided a list to uh, the police of... Somewhat detailed. A very, a very detailed list. and um, Both in its description of where, but also the happenings within. Yes, it was, it was, it was a quite a thorough account, <laughs> as I understand it. And One might suggest a little 
do thorough, but anyway. And indeed, <laughs> in, indeed, the the, the uh, police uh, officer who was um, dispatched to investigate these happenings did uh, note that in his report. Right. Uh, uh, um, that the uh, the complainant did uh, possess quite a detailed uh, uh, knowledge of, of of the occurrences. So so people have been mapping these uh, uh, you know, the, the queer traces through the city for a long time. Um, also, I guess um, uh, we find accounts of uh, um, queer happenings in historical locations, of course, through the popular press. And so um, another story is of. Um, people getting in trouble with the police for having sex in the Alexandra Gardens um, before it got tidied up um, with a lot of the foliage removed and bright lighting sort of put in the gardens. And so looking at the popular press, you get these um, accounts that are you know, retrospectively are quite hilarious where the police stumble upon a guy who's on his hands and knees and they say, well, what are you doing, you know, on your hands and knees, you know, in the dark, you know, you know in Alexandra Gardens. And he was saying that, well, you know, I'm looking for my pencil that I dropped. And, and uh, no doubt the, the light... The, <laughs> Uh, I mean, perhaps a, you know, it was a euphemistic kind of expression. Um, <laughs> Do you think? <laughs> but um, n- no doubt, the, the the improved lighting that happened um, uh, after um, these concerns became publicly kind of um, aired would have aided him in sort of locating stationary. And there's well. a lot to be thankful for with mowed lawns, surely. Uh, the Daniel, the the interesting thing I found in reading some of those um, extracts was the language that was used back then. It's, by our standards, perhaps a little flowery, but it's indicative of the time. Can you give me an example? Uh, I don't have it in front of me. Yeah. No, no uh, just the, the way it's, uh, it's worded, particularly the, the guy that was making the complaint to the police commissioner. Yeah. The way he worded things, I guess it was an, he wanted to be formal in his language, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it, it kind of is. But also was the commissioner's response... Yes. I mean, I think that there, there's a very evocative language of moral decay and ruin, um, which I think might be what you're referring yes, to. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, which is very characteristic, I guess, of, um, you know, discussions of um, uh, indecent, you know, sexual practices. Um, and I, I, those, the, the language of, of moral decay co- coding for, you know, illicit sex in terms of the way in which... Um, uh, it was expressed in letters, you know, I think it's quite a common kind of um, um, device. There was an account of uh, a Mr. Morrison being um, whipped. Ah, oh, yes. Uh, and it was reported in a newspaper. Uh, and the journalist wrote that um, if they were serious about uh, making a uh, some sort of um, deterrent in regards to this morally corrupt behaviour then perhaps the uh, flagellator might want to be a little more energetic in, in in future. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that we were pleased that we were able to do with the book was um, reproduce um, quite a lot of images, but also some archival... Um... Not enough images, by the way. <laughs> There's like 50 of them or something. <laughs> oh, really? Isn't uh, um, it's very heavy in the word, though. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a big book. Um, You've got to read it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but the the excerpt that you're referring to w- w- was actually um, an excerpt from um, uh, a news- newspaper coverage of the, um, the 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 whipping of this guy, um, and being he was whipped by the, the cat of nine tails as well, mind you. Um, and it was a a, a routine um, 
uh, flagellation that he was set to receive as part of his sentence. Every fortnight or something stupid. Um, <laughs> I can't exactly remember the period. It was 25 every two weeks or something, I don't know. But I think what is um, compelling about that um, passage is the the way in which it works to uh, to try to inspire public uh, um, lust for uh, retribution mm. violence to be done against this man. And I guess, you know, we can sort of see that commentary in the papers working as a place where public... Um, where public opinion is actively being sought to be shaped in relation to the types of behaviour that uh, should be meted out to people like that. And it's not only enough that he's imprisoned, that he's being whipped, but my goodness, you know, the guy's not really putting his back into it, you know. Yes. So okay. the Harder way, next time, thank you. That's right. So, um, and of course, I mean... It's interesting to draw those parallels to what's happening perhaps overseas, um, in other countries that aren't uh, perhaps more as accepting as we are? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, there are so many differences across different locations. Um, and just looking at the differences between the contemporary period in Melbourne and, and what happened then um, is, is you know, a compelling kind of comparison. One of the things that we did in preparing the book for publication was go around to the sites that um, are marked on the map and so I remember going to the um, old Melbourne jail, which is where um, Morrison got flogged. And of course now it's, um, you know, it's... Uh, RMIT. Well, it's RMIT, but there's also like, you know, a museum yeah. thing there. And in the, um, the, uh, the, the square or the open area inside it, there are all of these people, they're just playing basketball or soccer or something. <laughs> and I mean, I think that's one of the things that I find, well, that I found compelling about working on this project is you sort of see these bizarre juxtapositions between this history, this really violent public history of... Um, on this very spot. On this spot, which is now you have this very different kind of um, um, moment. And how do you reconcile those different historical points in time and, and how does that illuminate one and the other? Next time you go for a wander through the streets of Melbourne, you just might not know what you're walking over the top of. Um, Daniel, there was an interesting reference to a lesbian beat. Sure. So there is some discussion from the seventies about the presence of a of a lesbian beat. Um, it's un- there. There are different accounts as to where the lesbian beat occurred, um, and it, it, it was interesting to include that because I think people um, routinely think about beats as um, as as a gay male um, thing, and you know predominantly they are. And so it's interesting to kind of reflect on you know, the, the archival fragments that we have, which tells us, you know, there were discussions around the idea of lesbian beats in the 70s that kind of, um, that, that people were talking about. And um, I think that it's just useful to kind of um, have those threads through the book because um, it, it tells us that sometimes um, uh, things aren't as, as, as straightforward as we, might, as we might imagine. It's interesting that uh, when heterosexual couples park alongside the beach to fornicate in their cars, etc. It's not considered a beat. Uh, but we, uh, we we even have a name for it in, in a gay lexicon. Yes. I mean, and that was one of the interesting things about um, the Alexandra Gardens as, as well. You know, of course, heterosexual couples use the, the foliage and the darkness to have sex as well as, 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 well as um, gay couples. But um, it was... It was um, 
gay men and and um, sex workers and prostitutes who got um, um, a lot of the, the the public kind of commentary through the through the press, you know. And so I think that history is important to recount because it it, it tells us the story about the way in which um, um, particular figures get um, wheeled out to to where society's um, um, condemnation in relation to issues around sex. Yeah. Let's jump forward a little bit and explore that sort of mid-war uh, period, if you like, that uh, sort of from the 20s to the 40s. What was going on in Melbourne uh, other than pretty much focused effort on, on battling wars? Battling wars in, bet- in between the war period? You mean? Yeah, what, what was happening in, in Melbourne during that, that period, you know, 20s to 40s, before we kick into the 50s and 60s and the hedonistic times that are, uh, have laid ahead? For, for the archival record shows us that, that, that people found ways of meeting one another, but of course it, it wasn't in the, the public uh, identifiable way that came, to, came into focus in the post-World War II period when you see uh, um, um, a lot more identifiable kind of circles of people so but there were um i don't were, were there cafes or pubs or were that 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 particular type of men tended to congregate so um wayne um murdoch one of the um e- editors of the book um um has written a lot about this in the book and so he talks about um cafes and cafe um culture in melbourne which was really important in the era of the um six o'clock swill and and um and uh, so that was the place where people would go and socialise. So cafes um, were a very important part of organising, um, or, or organising socially for bohemians, for um, um, camp men, um, for people who didn't fit into the um, uh, you know regular parts of society otherwise, because it was quite a, a conventional um, an acceptable place for people to go. Um, and um, Theatres. So there's a a section around theatre land and around how theatres were a place where people could could, um, congregate and and meet um, one another. Mm. We're speaking with Daniel Marshall. He is one of the co-editors of The Secret Histories of Queer Melbourne, published by the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives. Daniel, you're a bit young to be... So interested in history, aren't you? <laughs> Isn't that for old people? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. What what got you interested in uh, in historical references? And I guess why is uh, gay history a particular passion? Okay. Um, I suppose I became interested in um, in, in, in volunteering at the archives um, uh, during the period when I was writing my PhD, which was. Uh, I guess now known as Dr. Daniel, right? <laughs> yes, um, uh, that's right. Um, it's so uh, glamorous doing a PhD. Um, in that, in, in my PhD, I was examining history uh, theories around um, uh, queer history and around history and sexuality, and it was through that process that I became um, uh, more interested in um, uh, the work of the archives and in um, historical research uh, in Australia uh, per se. And so that's when I um, started volunteering at the archives um, and exploring my particular research interests through the the holdings in the archives. And I think um, I'm also really drawn to uh, 
the spirit of the archives, which um, is, it, you know, it's a volunteer organisation. Um, it, um, it, it started in 1978. Uh, it, it, it locates itself in the community and it's really there to, to, to work um, uh, within the community and for the community um, as opposed to perhaps some kind of um, institution that works outside of the community. And so, uh, you know, that, that was very attractive to me. It's something that I wanted to contribute to. And on that basis, how are we doing um, as a community? Um, is, is the Gay and Lesbian Archive a complete or thorough reference like we would expect from um, a particular state library, for example? Well, the, um, the archives collects a broad range of material, not just um, lesbian and gay material, but trans, bi, queer, um, uh, and, and other material that, that doesn't fit so neatly within those kind of identity categories. Um, and of course, with any archive, you know, there are, there, there are some areas where we need, you know, more uh, to collect more material. Mm -hmm. um, working on the book, one of the areas that I um, you know, think that, that we need to collect more around is in relation to the, the Indigenous um, content in the collection. And so I think that that's an area you know, f for growth. But a as a community organisation, of course, our capacity to grow is, is um, linked to you know, how many people are involved. And, and, um, and so it's really um, a project that... that uh, uh, is unfolding always, and, and um, so um, it's a work in progress, you know, 30-odd years on, yeah, but it's um, an amazing resource for anyone who hasn't checked it out, yeah. I must come down, because I have boxes full of magazines that I have kept from the uh, mid-90s through to the early 2000s, and I don't know why I am still lugging them around from house to house, but um, uh, I've always wondered whether it would be something that would interest the archives. It, how, do, how do we contribute? And, and do you often get, um, oh, God, not that again, you know, walking through the door? Somebody thinks it might be of value to you and you've got 20 of them already? Well, of course, there um, there is a lot of duplication in what people collect. Um, so we um, have a whole range of um, uh, we list material, so we know what we already hold, and um, you know we have, for example, a, a listing of the periodicals. So when people come to us and say, "I've been collecting these magazines over this period of time, um, I've got this, this, and this." Uh, we can see if we've got gaps now in our uh -huh. collection. So um, I might be able to help then. Yeah, that would be terrific. <laughs> um, so um, and we have that information on our website, um, which people can get to by Googling our name. Um, so that would be, you know, a, a first point of call, I guess. And we're always, um, you know, ha happy to have conversations with people about um, ways of organising material that they might want to, to bring in because there are ways that people can do that that would be really helpful for us. Is there... A, a goal to create some sort of a museum or is uh, what, how, do, how is this stuff stored? Because I would imagine um, to, to us as a community, it's very valuable. Yeah. So the uh, Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives is um, currently housed um, 
in the um, uh, VAC building in South Yarra, and we're very um, uh, grateful for their generosity in, in housing us there. During our 30th anniversary year, we had a large fundraising drive, which has enabled us to um, fit out um, some of uh, the, the space that we have um, at the VAC. So we now have um, a brand new compactus um, for those of you out there who get really excited about um, oh, many do, many do, <laughs> glistening grey. <laughs> Um, and uh, new shelving as well. So we now have a, a space um, uh, where, where uh, volunteers can have access to natural light and <laughs> running water, which is very attractive for, oh, for people. Bloody luxury! <laughs> um, and, um, of course, you, you know, recently um, um, Vic Bears just raised $10,000 for the archives, which is an amazing wow. achievement as well. So it's um, with support like that, you know, which is really um, encouraging, you know, in terms of... Uh, um, facing you know the issues that the archives will face in the future in terms of preserving um, and making this um, material accessible. Mm. Well, uh, there's a lot of politics in the gay and lesbian community, but I would imagine uh, one thing we could be universally thankful for is uh, the fact that there are people like yourself maintaining, caring for, and um, and reporting on our history. So I think um, I thank you for that, and and uh, I think it's pretty important that we continue to contribute to it. Well, it's a it's a it's a it's a large group effort. You know, there's a committee, there's volunteers who've been doing this work for a long time. So, what do you get out of it? Um, well, it's I mean, this. The archives has been running since 1978. You know, I've um, um, obviously I've been involved for a shorter period of time. I guess you know since about perhaps um, maybe 2004 or so. And I think walking into the collection, you um you just see how remarkable it is. And so, so um, I guess maintaining it and um, um, helping it to grow, um, facilitating people's access to it, um, uh, keeping it going, I think that's, you know, a, a, an enriching thing to do. Yeah. Good stuff. Daniel Marshall is the co-editor of The Secret Histories of Queer Melbourne. Now, Daniel, uh, we were talking earlier about the sort of war period. Let's look at what's happened uh, after the war and uh, explore a name that will be synonymous to many listeners in the gay and lesbian community, Freddie Asmussen. Now, he was the head of the display department at my uh, city store here in Melbourne. Let's talk about Freddie and his boys. Um, Graham Willett wrote a chapter on Freddie Asmussen in the book um, and in that chapter he talks about um, the way in which Freddie um, created uh, a space um, uh, at, at, at uh, Mars. Very accepting space. <laughs> a very accepting space by, um, by, by, by those accounts oh, where um, um, uh, young um, Faye men could get uh, employment. And People of a creative <laughs> persuasion, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, apparently it was quite um, hotly... Um, sought after this vocational position because uh, it uh, attributed you with a particular kind of status within uh, certain circles um, uh, and there was a lot of uh, competition. And, and protection. And protection, I guess. And, and pe- they could um, link into uh, networks of other, of, of other um, camp people as well. Um, and it was very welcoming of people who were transgender or gender-questioning um, or, or flamboyant, um, as long as you were a good creatively, I imagine. 
Well, in in, in the chapter, I'm Gra- hoping that's all it was. <laughs> Gra- Graham recounts stories of of the um of the floats that um that that Freddie yes. and Freddie's boys would put together. Um, and it was under his reign, was it not? That the windows, uh, Christmas windows, became. That's right. So so um the 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 Christmas windows are what's left of um a broader um uh, a, a um, tradition tradition of yeah. decorating windows um and um by all accounts. Uh, the decoration was was very over the top, and Graham talks about there being this um, uh, hidden floor almost um, in Myers, where where Freddie would store all of this um, the props, the props, you know, this gilt and these you know um, uh, fancy furniture that he would wheel out for particular kinds of events. So it, it does create quite a, a surreal kind of retrospective image. As an old display queen myself, it it, it saddens me to see today that uh, the only effort that shops go to is a couple of decals and some mannequins at best that whole uh, idea of creating a story and 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 telling or, or, or transforming the fashion into a story uh, has gone and uh, Freddie was uh, to be commended but there was a lot of competition associated with being one of Freddie's boys uh, my, uh, the Georges, David Jones, um, and Maya were in hot competition. Yes, yes. Now let's uh, move along to the story of the ASIO involvement with uh, the gay history of Melbourne. Oh, so the Secret Service. So um, similar, I guess, to the um, uh, excerpt in relation to um, the, the flogging of, of, of Morrison. Um, the book features some other excerpts from some um, um, ASIO documents around um, uh, male homosexuals, um, because of course, in the in the uh, Cold War period, the post World War II period, there was a lot of anxiety around. Um, uh, communism and um, so we're talking around the fifties, sixties, yeah, yeah, and yes, and and uh, so and there was a um, a connection. People made a connection between um, communism uh, and uh, homosexuality, and, and part of the way in which the well, argument clearly you're right, <laughs> bloody pinko comic bastards. <laughs> part of part of the 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 the, the uh, arguments that were made with that. Um, uh, homosexuals, uh, security for security agencies were uh, uh, concerned by this kind of mystical connection that homosexuals seem to have one with another, um, a kind of a, 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 an identification or 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 an allegiance which um, would uh, uh, supplant or or um, exceed the, the the bonds of nationalism. So, if nothing else, we were good at uh, manifesting and maintaining an underground presence, I guess. Maybe that's drawing a long bow, but uh, we uh, had to fly under the radar for so long. I think. I mean, I think that the uh, the anxieties around homosexuality that were um, uh, expressed as part of the the anti communist paranoia picked up on those broader kind of concerns about you know, male about homosexuality as being um, something that is. Um, Subterranean and something that's you can't quite identify but need to worry about. Now, there's a chapter titled uh, "A Melbourne Homosexual." Yes, uh, with regards to the former site of the ASIO headquarters. Yes, so that refers to a document um, uh, uh, in which um, a, a, a Melbourne homosexual is interviewed and provides um, information to uh, security personnel about um, how to identify homosexuals and about how um, to spot them and, and about. Um, 
uh, homosexual practices. Um, and this is interesting because uh, it gives us an insight into the way in which um, uh, security personnel were thinking about um, homosexuals um, uh, not that long ago, really, and this kind of bizarre sort of anthropological kind of... Profiling. Profiling. Yeah. Um, Any uh, evidence to suggest that uh, some of these ASIO heads or officers were in fact themselves homosexual? Oh, I couldn't comment on that. Oh, it's classified. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> Not my field. The emergence of the Seahorse Club, which has been around for years yes. and, and st- remains... To this day, yeah, the Seahorse Club are a particular organisation that are there to embrace and welcome um, transsexuals. Yes, so there's a great chapter in the book that um, details the history of um, the club, many of which are not gay. The, it's a, yeah, it's a club for for, for trans yeah. people, yeah. Um, and they talk uh, uh, in the chapter. Um, there's a great discussion about moving venues for the um, for the club, um, and, mo- and moving out of um, a, a person's apartment to moving into uh, a, a bridal suite of a um, hotel, um, um, uh, and talking about the nerve wracking experience of going and um, collecting the keys from reception when people are, are rocking up for their meeting at the bridal suite. So um, it's one of the things which I which was um, pleasurable about working on the book is that you get these evocative kind of images of, of, of moments in time historically about um, uh, how um, these groups um, came into being. I uh, remember working behind the bar at Three Faces in its early days and the Seahorse Club would arrive uh, very early, uh, shortly after the doors opened, but on a night which was generally quieter, they would... Uh, all drink orange juice. None of them drank, uh, drank, drank alcohol. And they were there just to socialise amongst themselves um, in a safe space. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, and by the time that the, the general uh, club crowd was coming in, they would slowly disappear. Um, yes. It's an interesting organisation. Yes. Um, but an important one. Absolutely. Uh, now, the... I guess the, the the gay revolution really kicked in uh, from the early seventies, and uh, Melbourne's inner north became uh, really a hub for the emergence of, I guess the the gay scene as we uh, start to begin to know it as today. Sure, um, I think that um, the uh, the the rise of gay liberation and um, and and um, gay and lesbian activist politics, um, um, lesbian feminist politics, uh, as we um, can identify them now, um, really um, was accelerated in the 70s by the material support that was provided through um, the Australian Union of Students, uh, through um, clubs that were set up, you know, at, at, at Melbourne University especially. And so... Um, some of those reasons account for why there was a lot of activity, you know, in the north, and um, it really was a, a vibrant period. And of course, we have a lot of material on that because that's when the period when we start to see the emergence of, or the really acceleration of, um, gay and lesbian print media, um, magazines, um, pu- periodicals, and the the archives has, you know, the most comprehensive collection of of um, LGBTIQ. Uh, periodicals, Australian periodicals anywhere. And, you know, we have this rich kind of account of that period from those periodicals that, that started during that time. So um, 
it certainly was a really active kind of period um and and um and uh, uh the Dover Hotel which is uh, on the corner of Ligon and Victoria Streets in Carlton was sort of the emergence of that that new scene um and then the gay rights movement kicked in and there was a particular picnic that uh, really kicked things off i believe um there were there there's um there was a picnic, there's a number of picnics of, really actually wasn't there Cause, yeah. uh, i guess uh various organizations have emerged from those gatherings yes yeah so there there's a story in the book about um a, a gay lib picnic and um some of the games that happened there and and some nice pictures too <laughs> Um, let's uh, talk about the uh, taking of action on D-Day uh, at the floral clock on St Kilda Road. Yeah. Because that was uh, somewhat disturbing to many. Sure. I mean, so that um, is a chapter that talks about um, ACT UP's response to um, a lack of government support in relation to funding for um, HIV uh, medication. And they basically destroyed the floral clock. They basically destroyed the floral clock, but it was um, it's a it's a it's a great chapter because it kind of um, provides this um, you know a, a an activist diary of of uh, uh, the series of things that happened, which involved the the the, the, the floral clock um, as well as you know issuing a press release and and it was quite controversial. Um, um, because it was shocking to many people in Melbourne because <laughs> many people <laughs> value the floral clock. But as the slo- I think one of the slogans that they used for that during that protest was that, well, the floral clock will grow back. Um, right. Whereas um, people who um, were re- relying on uh, HIV medication that they weren't able to access, you know, were not facing the same kind of situation. Um, I remember that particular event, uh, but... I can't remember whether I was in Melbourne or or still in in my hometown of Bendigo, but I do remember that event, and I remember it really upsetting me that that type of action was taken, that that there must or there could have been a better way. But I guess looking at it now, one wonders whether um, it took such extreme uh, defiance to uh, actually make a difference. Mm. I mean, I think one of the... Uh, interesting things about the book is that you can, um, even though it's not written, it's not a comprehensive narrative history of, of um, LGBTIQ Melbourne. It's a, a series of, of snapshots, really, um, organised by place. But what you can see by putting those different place-based um, uh, stories um, one against another is this different approach to politics and these different um, um, ways of thinking about and doing politics. And I think that that's a really rich kind of reflection to have um, because of the contemporary debates around, you know, politics and, and sexuality. Um, There's two chapters on the MCG. Mm. Graham um, wrote some chapters on the MCG. One of them is focusing on fans um, and how um, fan, uh, 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 fan culture or, or uh, Sports crowds. Sports crowds, football fans um, provided a space for, for some um, camp and gay and lesbian people, trans people to um, uh, develop social networks and were, um, were very involved. There's in the, the Collingwood Pink Cheer Squad thing. He talks about yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Um, and then another kind of talks about some of the, um, the, the popular kind of commentary around homosexuality and football in the 90s, um, perhaps more, no, not the 90s, um, 
later than that with Sh- the press around Shane Crawford and that type of stuff? It's an extraordinary phenomenon that uh, here in a hyper-masculine environment, um, one can understand the attraction for gay men to to, to view such a, a spectacle, um, yet if, you know, it, it's supposed to be the ultimate battle, etc. Um, and the crowds are generally quite homophobic, one would presume, um, and yet in the middle of it all, there's this bunch of puffs and dykes going off equally. Mm. Mm. And uh, they're there every time. Yes, yeah. Um, the, the comment is made in the chapter that... Um, uh, uh, People, uh, people's animosity towards people who backed a different club um, exceeded uh, a- any kind of homophobia. That, that, you know, <laughs> so it's kind of like a, a solidarity, you know, a solidarity. That bit's that not kind changed. Of, <laughs> so uh, quite a Melbourne, uh, quite a Melbourne story. Mm. And something that uh, certainly remains uh, very much in my mind is the uh, Tasty Raid at uh, Flinders Lane. Now that venue had uh, quite a bit of a. a queer, gay history much prior to Tasty. Yeah, one of the themes that comes up through the book again is um, uh, the, the significant role that police have played in, in the, you know, the histories that we're recounting. And um, <clears throat> one of the... Um, so, so in Tasty, of course, it details the police raid and, um, ha- you know, how traumatic that was. Um, but it kind of... Um, recalls earlier stories about police uh, strategies um, uh, and I'm thinking now of um, the uh, the police go gay chapter um, f- from the 70s when police uh, uh, were arresting um, men at the um, Black Rock uh, beat um, Black Rock Beach beat um, uh, after they had um, uh, practiced uh, the partic- that particular walk that they saw homosexual men do and would then dispatch the attractive officers in plain clothes to the beat, you know, mimicking that particular walk. And lo and behold, they successfully managed to have a, a large number of arrests, which kind of resulted in um, campaigning against that. So, so I think that uh, it is interesting to kind of reflect on um, the, the, the significant role that the policing has played in relation to um, uh, histories of... of um, homosexuality in Melbourne. And it also gives us a point of reference to uh, which uh, we can acknowledge how far we have come and in some instances what we have learnt, in others what we haven't. And uh, the secret history of Gay Melbourne is uh, an extraordinary documentary of uh, how we as a community have um, managed to battle on through and for many, it's a battle that continues. Well, I th- that's right. I mean, I think that the the, po- the political terrain for the battles that, that um, we negotiate in relation to sexual and gender difference is always evolving. So um, um, hopefully you know, this, this book provides a useful kind of... Um, uh, a useful and engaging kind of resource for people who are, who are wanting to explore those as, politics. As a co-editor, you have drawn from various essays and, and other books uh, to, to put this together. Um, the, it's come together very, very well. Um, are you pleased with the result? It's been a long process um, and it's um, uh, pleasing to be able to provide a platform for these stories. Um, and um, I guess our hope at, at the archives is that people... Um, take it up and and, um, 
make of it something that's useful for them. So, and the response so far has been really um, positive. So we're ha- really happy about that. And I imagine it would be a, a, an essential reference in libraries around Australia. Well, it's because its focus is Melbourne-based. I guess people who are in Melbourne and you know are going to have more of a kind of interest in it. But Daniel, um, I'm trying to get the librarians in our other states listening to pick it up. Well, work with me here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not very good at flogging it off. <laughs> You're a historian. That's fine. That's fine. Doctor Daniel Marshall is the co-editor of the Secret Histories of Queer Melbourne. Uh, He has uh, joined us from the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives. You can find out so much more and more about the book too at alga.org.au. Daniel Marshall, thank you so much for joining us word for word. Thank you for giving um, us the opportunity to talk about the book and to promote it and um, and to uh, uh, get the word out about the archives as well. It's our absolute pleasure. You've been with Dean Beck today on Word for Word. Thank you so much for joining us. You will find a podcast and a transcript of this interview available for download from Joy's website, joy.org.au. And if you would like to correspond with the show, simply email wordforword at joy.org.au. I'm Dean Beck. Till next time, you take care and bye for now. Word for Word is produced by Robert Briley from Australia's first gay and lesbian radio station, Melbourne's Joy 94.9. Word for Word is made possible thanks to funding provided by the Community Broadcasting Foundation and is distributed nationally to over 70 radio stations in the Community Radio Network. by becoming a member at joy.org.au. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.